The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines. President Trump threatens to dominate the streets by sending in the military to control the unrest, saying he will take action if state governors don't. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. A virtual walkout, a group of Facebook employees take a stand against the social media platform's executives, saying they should have acted on President Trump's post, claiming when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Hong Kong's chief executive Carrie Lam accuses the US of double standards over the protests, given Washington's reaction to what's going on. Meanwhile, S&P talks about potentially downgrading the city. Hopes pinned on a high-level meeting. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen reportedly scheduled key talks as negotiators head into the final round of Brexit talks with uh, many continual sticking points. Coming up on Squawk, open to the public, the Guggenheim Museum Bilbao opens its doors to visitors for the first time since March. But the director tells CNBC why summer will still be tough. U.S. President Trump has threatened to deploy the U.S. Army if state leaders can't contain the violence sparked by protests across the country. This is unrest over the death of George Floyd escalated despite curfews being imposed in many capitals. Trump called the events domestic acts of terror, adding that he would, quote, dominate the streets to get them under control. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. I am also taking swift and decisive action to protect our great capital, Washington, D.C. What happened in this city last night was a total disgrace. As we speak, I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property. President Trump also addressed fresh controversy over this appearance in front of an historic church. NBC's Alice Barr has the latest. Tonight, President Trump threatening to send active duty U.S. military troops into the streets, something that hasn't been done since the Rodney King riots of 1992. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. In his first formal address to the nation since the crisis began, President Trump promising justice for what he called the brutal death of George Floyd. 
he will not have died in vain. But we cannot allow the righteous cries and peaceful protesters to be drowned out by an angry mob. As he spoke, police and National Guard troops forcefully pushed back hundreds of peaceful protesters gathered outside the White House. That cleared the way for the president to walk across Pennsylvania Avenue to St. John's, known as the Church of the Presidents, to hold up a Bible in front of the historic building damaged by vandals last night. We have a great country. The Episcopal bishop who oversees the church quickly decrying the president for using it as a, quote, prop and accusing him of doing everything to divide us. The president's presumptive Democratic rival, Joe Biden, meeting with supporters in a Delaware church today and holding a virtual roundtable with mayors. Well, people are angry. We need that anger. Uh, we need that to compel us to move forward. Calls for action across a divided nation, insisting that only understanding the source can extinguish the flames. In a statement tonight, the mayor of Washington, D.C., criticized federal police for forcefully pushing protesters away from the White House 25 minutes before her curfew took effect. She said that would only make the job of local officers more difficult. In Washington, Alice Barr, NBC News. Police used tear gas to disperse peaceful protesters outside the White House. This as thousands took to the streets across the U.S. after 48-year-old Floyd was killed at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer last week. A curfew is in effect right now in New York City and is set to be in place for at least the next two days as police warn of growing violence. NBC News is reporting that at least 200 people have been arrested. What started in Minneapolis has now spilled over into large-scale demonstrations in cities throughout the country. We have some uh, live pictures of Portland where a large crowd has gathered. Curfews in place in uh, this uh, city as well. What you've seen across the country, various different uh, curfews, but timing's being tweaked because on Sunday night, the, the riots, the protests, demonstrations continued despite those curfews. So some of the curfews were brought earlier. So 8 o'clock, uh, the curfew in Portland went into effect. But you can see uh, many demonstrators ignoring those orders from uh, state governors and mayors to stay at home. You can see the placards there as they continue to walk the streets. Let's move on to Facebook as a number of the company's employees have staged a virtual walkout in response over the company's stance on recent posts from President Trump. A group of workers took to Twitter to express their belief that a post from the president that said when the looting starts, the shooting starts, violates Facebook standards. Twitter placed a warning label on Trump's post, but Facebook has so far left the same statement up. An employee told CNBC that CEO Mark Zuckerberg plans to hold a town hall with staff later today to address the issues. A host of Wall Street leaders have taken to social media and written staff emails to condemn racial discrimination in the U.S. amid the George Floyd protests. For more, you can check out CNBC.com. Let's take a look at the trade on Wall Street as we count down to the session today. Uh, in contrast to yesterday, when we had Green moving on to these boards, Dow Jones, Futures, NASDAQ and S&P 
all look weak this morning. So a little bit of catch up and it's quite startling that the market didn't move at all to price in these widespread demonstrations compared to civil rights activism you saw in the 1960s. But there was no evidence of this reflected on stock markets uh, bouncing to the green for the major averages. No sign on the fear gauge, which is still traveling below 30. Even on treasuries, there's no bid for safety out there in the markets. And when you think about the effects, you've got this reopening trade that's occurred on risk assets for a couple of weeks now. But the reopening has been dealt a blow. We talk about the retailers now adjusting many of their plans because of curfews that have come into effect in various states and cities. Delivery platforms that are having to tweak those deliveries because they can't get to uh, some of the doors on time and changing the patterns for some of their workers so they're safe. You've got to say uh, there are also some unknowns too around coronavirus where the protesting that we've seen, will that lead to another spike in infections? A serious enough one for the United States in coming weeks. So, Jeff, I would say what you see on the markets, fairly extraordinary action where they're just looking at one story at this stage, which seems to be the reopening of economies and that China isn't really launching any particular trade fight just yet, we wonder whether that's in doubt at this stage and whether the market's looking at the wrong thing. Yeah, I'm not sure, Karen. I think markets find it very difficult to price in this kind of social discontent, particularly in America's case, where this has been a a running sore for decades, as we know. So as we look at the market reaction at the moment, I think what you say is right. The market is more focused on the easing of the lockdowns around the pandemic. Of course, there is always the risk here that the National Guard steps in and we get imposed lockdowns in a number of states. But I think as Jim Cramer was pointing out, as he was making remarks around the market having very little conscience, the stocks that are rebounding through the last 24 hours are those that we saw make gains in the initial stage of the pandemic because people begin to wonder again whether they will get a second time round to buy these companies if indeed the National Guard is brought in and there is some imposition of further restrictions. But I will say, I think the reason perhaps that the sentiment is still relatively positive is because some of the economic numbers point to an improvement in the situation. And it's a rate of change story. Obviously, things are very grim still. But we did see manufacturing in the U.S., bounce off this low. We did see news that companies have been able to raise money through share sales, 60 billions worth uh, through the month of May. So they are able to recapitalize. And we are continuing to see improving numbers around the world in different countries in terms of infection rates and death numbers. So I think, as you point out, the market is prepared to look through what it believes at the moment may be just a temporary spate of civil disorder in the United States in the United States, however awful it is and however awful the causes have been. Steve. Yeah, I just had a couple of points. One, the fact is the market didn't like the alternatives when we had higher interest rates and less QE. The market likes the alternatives less. And quite frankly, there's only a certain amount of money you can put uh, in cash in the bond market, in gold. You have to dip your toe somewhere. So the alternatives are less than they ever were, despite the fact that you have less buyback and dividend than you've had for a very long time. The other point I would raise is that we are still a very, very long way from previous highs on a whole host of measures, many, many measures. I mean, actually, it was a surprise to me looking at the data in the last 24 hours that the Russell 2K, for instance, is actually up since the inauguration 
only 4.4%. It's actually 18% off its 52-week high. So actually, a lot of those mid-cap US companies are way, way below, almost in bear market territory. And there's a whole host of indices, sub-industries and sub-sectors, which are nowhere near their 52-week high. Let me just go through it. Energy, as you'd expect, has been under a large amount of pressure. It is still significantly in bear market territory. It is down 38% from its 52-week high uh, that we hit in April last year financials are still devastatingly below their 52-week high, 24% below that level. Industrials down 20.5%. And then you move into the correction territory uh, indices, such as real estate up six, uh, down 16% off the 52-week high. Utilities down 15%. So for us to look at markets and say they're a bullion, well, that's just not true. Some markets are, and some stocks, which of course, as we've graphically said, are benefiting from the situation or are perceived to be of the zeitgeist, they are doing significantly better. But there are whole tranches of the US and global economy, from big cap to small cap, from um, industrial sectors to real estate, to financials to energy, etc., etc., that are still massively off their recent highs. Steve, uh, thank you for that, very much for that. I just wanted to uh, add to what we have been hearing overnight from business leaders. And I wanted to point out that as we started out 2020 talking about the E element in ESG, I think fund managers now having to swift, uh, swiftly move over to the S component. The S component around uh, social for workers in particular was what we saw around coronavirus. Now that has escalated to the way we are seeing discrimination play out across institutions and even in companies. That was picked up by Larry Fink yesterday. So just worth noting with all that thing time out there to re-explore the S and the ESG component. I want to take it now to markets and what we're witnessing on that Wall Street trade in the green, as we mentioned, uh, parking itself very much away from some of the unrest that we've witnessed. Perhaps the disturbances around Manhattan overnight uh, will make a difference to the trade today as you've seen those futures turn weaker. But uh, it was a stronger session, modestly high, but the Nasdaq showing the leadership again, six-tenths higher, travelling to its highest level that we've seen since about the 21st of February, now less than 3% off its all-time highs. In terms of the various elements of the market, uh, for the likes of the Dow, it was Boeing uh, that was one of the big moving stocks uh, contributing to the upside that you saw. So this is about economies restarting, travel resuming, and eventually those orders are being repaired for the likes of Boeing, but the stock up 3.7 plus percent. Apple was a big driver for the S&P and the Nasdaq. That stock rallying 1.2 percent, and you could see uh, the climbs to $321.85. Asian markets. This is how we look across the board. And what we're now watching very closely, the tone shift around purchases of China of American uh, soybean and pork. That has just questioned the narrative that's been in the markets this week as to whether the trade deal, phase one trade deal with the United States and China remains intact. At this stage, we are seeing that the Chinese market trade a little bit weaker. It is down a tenth of a percent. Hong Kong, uh, modestly firmer, 100 plus points to the upside. Australia, four tenths in the green. And the Cosby is one of the better performers of the region in South Korea. The opening calls here in Europe, but this is how we're setting up for the trading session. Also marching into the green. We had a positive session on Monday leadership across some of these markets, a 1.1% pop for the stock share of 600, but even stronger for the FTSE. Take a look at the DAX in particular, as we just drill down to that one. It was closed yesterday for with Monday, so we're looking forward to resume and play a little bit of catch up. It is chasing 54 to the upside. Steve. Coming up on the show, the UK continuing to prepare for life after the post-peak of coronavirus, uh, potentially looking at what will be very strict quarantine rules due to come in on Monday, also looking to reignite stalled Brexit talks this week. We'll have plenty more on Squad Box when we return.
If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The UK government is considering excluding certain countries with low coronavirus infection rates from its plan to enforce a 14-day quarantine on those arriving in Britain. Conservative MPs have mounted pressure to establish the so-called transport corridors. Well, let's get at Stephen Moore. Stephen, might be other countries seeking to quarantine Britons at this stage, given where the coronavirus cases are here versus some other countries. But no doubt any removal of these measures would be welcomed by some quarters of the public. Yeah, Karen, from the way I understand it, every country wants the British tourists because they know how important they are for them, whether it's the French, the Italians, the Spanish, the Portuguese and the Greeks as well. We've heard from various tourism ministers across the board saying how they would welcome the British tourists, but they want reciprocal agreements. And we've seen, of course, uh, yet another fit of peak from Monsieur Macron, of course, by saying, well, if the British uh, are going to quarantine us coming into the country, then we will quarantine them back as well. It's not been the same reaction across the board. Uh, many countries are opening uh, their borders to the UK, for instance, the Italians from June the 3rd are taking away all quarantining uh, requirements for tourists coming into the country from all countries, including the British as well. So there is a, a differing response to the British approach. But it seems quite extraordinary that Pretty Patel, the UK Home Secretary, seems hell-bent on bringing in these quarantine rules, which, to recap to our viewers, mean that anyone, anyone coming into the country uh, from the 8th of June will have to self-isolate, even if they show no coronavirus symptoms whatsoever, for 14 days after they enter the country. Now, I, I've given up on how many times I I've read from politicians, from international uh, equivalents of uh, Priti Patel, uh, from corporations, from the airlines, from IATA, from just about everybody out there who said this is a ruinous policy and not potentially based in science. We heard it from uh, Michael O'Leary in the last couple of weeks, how vehemently opposed he was to this. And I think many people are scratching their heads about, well, if it's such an important policy... Why don't we have it now? We haven't had it throughout this entire period where people have been able to walk through uh, immigration at Heathrow, Gatwick, Stansted and the like and not have any form of isolation whatsoever. What is so important about June the 8th onwards? So pretty Patel and perhaps the UK government box themselves into a bit of a corner on this one. So ever since it, it started uh, rearing its head, people have been talking about air corridors and, and exemptions uh, from the strict quarantine, of course. And I read in the last 24 hours that, uh, uh, that the Grand Prix teams may get some form of exemption as well. And indeed, the UEFA and Champions League teams may get some form of exemption. So others are saying, well, if they can get exemptions, why can't we as well? So there's all kinds of smoke and mirrors about this. Safe to say the government looks like it's trying to backtrack by saying, well, after its initial three-week review, uh, they will look at the broader measures and try and bring in uh, some form of qualified quarantining as well. Rishi Sunak was talking about this and indeed about the measures that the UK government has made to date uh, in the last 24 hours. Let's hear from the Chancellor of the Exchequer. It's absolutely safe and we've got a very clear plan that we've been sticking to throughout this whole process of dealing with coronavirus. And we're now at the stage of that plan where we can get our lives a little bit more back to normal. But look, that isn't an overnight Big Bang thing. It's measured, it's uh, progressive. We do it in a safe and responsible way. And that's why today we're starting with covered markets and car showrooms. In a couple of weeks, we'll get the shops open. And then hopefully at the beginning of July, we'll be able to get many more uh, restaurants and pubs open as well. 
The Chance of Exchequer, who's set to outline 9.30 today, local time, 10.30 CT, the latest job retention scheme numbers. Uh, in fact, the government had a good day yesterday. If you can have a good day when hundreds of people are still dying, I'm afraid. Uh, 111 new deaths, that's the lowest since the lockdown. Had the lowest number of new recorded cases, the lowest numbers of patients on mechanical ventilators. Uh, and the vast majority of uh, recent cases, according to the health secretary, Matt Hancock, talking at the briefing last night, uh, said that they have been tracked and tracing. So he's rebutted some of the criticism that track and trace is not fit for purpose. Back to you. New Zealand coronavirus is welcome, isn't it? Well, Prime Minister Johnson and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen are reportedly expected to hold a fresh Brexit conversation later this month as negotiations have floundered over access to fisheries and applying common standards to work. Uh, Steve, clearly we're in this countdown mode again to the end of June as to whether there should be an extension to that deadline beyond December. The Prime Minister has pushed back against any extension to the deadline to talks. And I wonder whether he might be right at this stage because it feels as though the mood is fragile out there. We've had lockdowns, there's frustration over coronavirus, job prospects unsettles people at the best of times. And now if there's any pushback to a Brexit deadline, it could be the catalyst for tipping the mood music out there. What do you make of that? I think, um, in fact, what I'm going to do, Karen, is I'm going to go back a, a stage to a question you asked me yesterday about Dominic Cummings and, and, and just frame this in the Brexit debate. Because, of course, as you asked me yesterday, well, what do you think about what the government's been doing regarding their defence of Dominic Cummings? And I think, actually, it's more about Brexit than COVID-19 because he is, of course, one of the absolute key architects of the Boris Johnson plan, perhaps the continuing key architect, uh, despite the likes of Steve Barclay and David Frost out there as well, potentially at the tiller as well. So I think it's absolutely key as far as UK government is concerned that they keep this very aggressive approach going. As far as I can see on the surface, the, the, the key sticking points are the same key sticking points that we would have talked about one year, two year, three years ago, i.e. we have a load of fish and fishing areas that the Europeans want. The Europeans uh, have um, obviously access to their markets, which we want. We can only have the latter if we agree at the moment to state aid, worker rights, environmental common standards and ECG um, prevalence in many of these issues as well. Well, uh, uh, according to the Brits, that is a non-starter at all. And I just wonder if there is a bit of pragmatism, both on the fishing rights that the Europeans want and, and indeed um, the British access and the conditionality that we would accept access uh, to the EU on as well. It seems on the surface very bellicose, but as we're hearing, Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson may be set for some form of summit where it's virtual or actually in the flesh uh, later on this month. Jeff. Yeah, I, a couple of things just to throw in. One is uh, um, the way that the negotiations have shifted to this virtual realm. And I wonder if that has uh, uh, just increased the antagonism to a certain extent. Um, if you are sat in a room directly opposite your counterpart, you have the opportunity to read the physical signals. You have the opportunity to shake hands and you can establish some working dialogue then the likelihood of making progress at the margins is higher, it seems to me, whereby if you are just staring into a screen and talking over a screen, then I think that's a little bit harder. And the other one is, to what extent has COVID-19 hardened positions on both sides here? Uh, we see an EU that believes it's being generous with its own member states, rolling out this uh, exceptional uh, assistance and support, perhaps as a message to the UK in part saying, look, if you are part of the club, these are some of the benefits you may enjoy. And on the other side of this, maybe the UK looking at what's happened through this period and, and the government saying, well, we've kind of managed okay. We've um, 
bumbled our way through this. And as we come through the other end, we've reinstilled this idea of uh, self-determination and self-help. And we know how to uh, make industrial companies turn to making ventilators. Why can we not reshore some of our manufacturing sector and actually perhaps do some of the things that would previously have been provided by other EU countries. So I think on both sides, Karen, this peculiar three months that we've gone through seems just to be hardening negotiating positions. Economists, of course, are looking through some of the ramifications if there isn't a positive deal with Europe and saying it could be very negative for supply chains. You think about the time at the end of the year as we potentially face another wave of coronavirus. If there's no vaccine, you might already have that challenge again as people are seeking certain products. At the same time, disruptions with Europe would not be a good outcome for the country. The other point is around the economic side and what it means for the pound and also for the Bank of England. And what we've seen in recent days, mounting short in recent weeks, I should say, mounting shorts against the pound. And you can see we've climbed to better levels currently, but the shorts are up there and the market is wondering whether we might be staring down the barrel of negative rates. It's been something that the central bank is still denying is going to be uh, one of the tools that they're likely to use, but it's still an option up there. And you can see, as a result, investors are positioning just in case. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.